0: Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast. I am Conor O'Gara. Will, how was Mother's Day? Oh my gosh. It was
1: amazing, man. I, uh, we have a Mother's Day tradition where we just delete crawfish. So we ordered... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what a verb.
0: Delete. <laughs>
1: delete it. Yeah. If you're ever like really hungry, you're like, oh, I'm going to go delete, you know, a Chipotle burrito or whatever. Uh, but yeah, no. So we ordered a good like 10, 12 pounds of crawfish. Me and my mom split it. My stepdad doesn't actually eat crawfish. So we just get some Ultras, some Miller Lights and just crush these crawfish. And uh, yeah, got to do that with my mom. She helped me work on a commercial, which was really cool. Love working with her and just had an overall great we could, did a deep dive on Edwin Edwards, a uh, famous Louisiana governor, and just really growing up in Louisiana for her was just a wild time.
0: <laughs> we had very different Mother's Day experiences. Yes, how was yours? <laughs> uh, no, no mother to celebrate here. It was, it was a phone call. It was a phone call. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the, that's the difference between actually living within driving distance of your mom and uh, living uh, in a different time zone, and probably what would have, yeah, what's, what's like a three hour flight or something like that. Uh, did not necessarily celebrate Mother's Day here in the same sort of way. It was more of a phone call and also a, a panicked, I think I accidentally sent your gift along with the stuff that I'm getting rid of to AmVets. Um, <laughs> that happened. That was quite the text to be like, Oh,
2: Hey, like, Hey
0: mom, did you get my gift at like nine in the morning uh, on Sunday morning? And she's like, actually, um, I might have given it away accidentally oh because she's in, no. the, she's in the process of, uh, of like clearing out a bunch of stuff in her house. She's going to be moving uh, sometime soon in the next few months here. So she accidentally sent the, the box, a, a pottery barn box that I, that I had sent her with her gift um, along the Ambets took it away. And uh, yeah, all's well that ends well though, because somehow by some divine miracle, she got that box back. No oh, idea go. how. I'm guessing it's just because a Pottery Barn box doesn't look exactly like an Ambet's box that you have with a bunch of clothes. I don't know, but she got it back. That's all that mattered. Hopefully she liked the, the margarita glasses that, that I got her. Um, but yeah, it was, it was an eventful, eventful Mother's Day. I more so realized that my father-in-law is maybe not human. He stayed with us um, from Wednesday to Saturday and basically built us an entire backyard. I'm not uh, exaggerating when I say that. We got raised beds. We've got a garden wall. We've got an entire outdoor couch. We've got a bat house post that we like put in our, put like in, in the ground and everything, like had to pour the cement in there. Pause. The man did everything. A hey, bat house, like like inviting bats in your yard? Correct, and the, I've, I've had, I've had <laughs> people ask, I've had people ask, what's the purpose of that? We're gonna get to college football stuff in a second. Here, right. I promise
1: you. Listen, when you could ask a bat house question, you just gotta do it. That's the rule I live by. They eat
0: insects, and that's the goal. If I want to be out in my backyard after seven o'clock, usually in Florida, that's, that's a no-go. You're getting eaten alive. All right? right. You can have your tiki torches. You can have stuff like that, or you can have a bat house, and you can have a place <laughs> where bats can go to their own little home, which it essentially looks like a birdhouse, but. We did that because we had bats that snuck into our actual like physical structure of our home on our front porch, our little like overhang there, and mm-hmm. they were living in there. So we're like, huh, what would be a good way to get 50 bats out of our home? We figured that out. we had to seal it all no, off. No, again, 50? 50? Pa- 0 Yeah. Oh, yeah. You they had they don't 50 need much bats in your home. Yes.
1: That is uh, almost worse than 30 to 50 feral hogs. That is an aggressive amount of bats.
0: Not like inside of our house. I'm not dodging a bat going to the bathroom here. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, Oh, okay.
1: Just making sure. Okay. It wasn't a real bat problem. 51! Now that would have been a problem.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was a real bat problem. It was on our front porch. The structure that that stands up, it's like a load-bearing structure, and they were essentially sneaking into that that part and going to the bottom of this structure. Nobody cares about this. I don't even know why I'm explaining this. My father-in-law is not a human being. He is just a, a, a robot. He's a machine. And he builds things at a rate that, quite frankly, I've never seen before. He might be the most productive human being on the face of the earth. And I'm okay saying that. I know it was Mother's Day weekend, but I just needed to get that out there into the world.
1: Sorry, so I was yeah, just making was sure you weren't understand. inviting other bats. I'm sure the HOA
0: wouldn't have loved that, but you're
1: in fact essentially corralling your existing hole. bats. Okay, that's a very nice thing because I would have been yeah. screaming at them in cajun and just hitting them with a broom. So good for no. you for being a nice guy. <laughs> Many
0: people would have gone to extreme lengths to kill these bats, and I realize that bats um, in the post-COVID world are probably public enemy number one. <laughs> bats we have gotten insane. a really bad rep lately. You're right. Yeah, it's it's tough. Not a whole lot of people helping out the bat uh, the bat population, but. They have a purpose and they have a purpose in the food chain and they want to they want to kill bugs and eat bugs and i want to be able to sit out in my backyard so hey we're going to provide this this bat home and and watch the insects go away so that's what we decided to do um but yeah it was an eventful weekend nonetheless loaded loaded podcast today uh, i know that intro didn't exactly make it seem like it but i promise you it is this show is so loaded that i don't even have a a, a monologue for for the people because our guests were Absolutely fantastic. We've got two excellent interviews coming up, Brett McMurphy and Adam Brenneman, both of whom both they, they both broke pretty significant national news in the past week and a half. So we're going all over the place today with Brett. He dug into conference realignment stuff with like when Oklahoma and Texas could be coming to the SEC. And if we'll eventually get playoff expansion when the four-team contract is up at the end of the 2025 season. At the end, I promise you, you're going to want to listen to Brett. Uh, look back on the 2018 Zach Smith, Urban Meyer story that he broke and the resistance that he had from Ohio State, you know, and, and all that he kind of dealt with. Um, I, that was just gonna be like kind of a, a like a last second question. And as you'll kind of see from the interview, it turned into him, into him kind of being able to vent some frustration about all that went down with that. Just a wild story to look back on. It's crazy to think that it's already been four years since all of that happened. Ohio State and fans, the, famously rational people. You, you know what, he actually, he's got a story, a little teaser. He's got a little story that makes you think that Ohio State fans maybe have turned the corner a little bit, a little bit, not all the way, but maybe just a tiny bit with some of that stuff and what he dealt with in the aftermath of that. And then Adam, who was Adam Brenneman, who was a, a stud tight end at Penn State, and then later at UMass, um, he got into to coaching. He was involved with the stuff at, at Arizona State. No, I did not get into the ins and outs of what happened on that staff with Herm Edwards. That was not going to be a popular topic of conversation, but he did address at least some of it, so you'll kind of see uh, what exactly we got into. And he's he's more on the media side now, so he's very well versed in a lot of NIL stuff. We talked a lot about the Jordan Adams. Addison's situation, the news that, that he broke on that Friday of the NFL draft. And then he talked a little bit of Bill O'Brien stuff and then some, some interesting things about the evolution of the tight end position. So a ton of stuff this pod. I promise you, do not think that just because we don't have a monologue that there's nothing in this podcast, a lot to get to. And then we're going to end with stake in figuring it out as well. So first, here's Brett. And then we've got Adam. I'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is Brett McMurphy. Brett is uh, currently on his way to Amelia Island for the ACC meetings. Brett, are you on I-4 as we speak? Because if so, uh, thoughts and prayers to you. Uh,
2: fortunately not, but I am on I-75. So Ugh. it's not as quite as bad. as Yeah, I-4 is horrible. I-75, not as bad. A little bit better.
0: Yeah, a little, little bit better. Uh, I-, I wanted to discuss the the story that you broke last week because there could be some major implications across college football with it. And we're we're kind of already seeing people connect the dots. You reported that houston cincinnati and ucf are in negotiations to pay a settlement in the 17 to 20 million dollar range to be able to join the big 12 in 2023 it would essentially be a year early from when they're scheduled to to join the conference originally that number was 35 million that acc the aac commissioner uh mike Oresco was seeking for each school to be able to leave early add in byu leaving for the big 12 next year and correct me if i'm wrong here but it feels like the Big 12 is in its last year of its current existence.
2: Yeah, look, the four, the four schools will be in the Big 12 next year. I think by the end of this month, the exit agreement will be reached between Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF. You mentioned, you know, the 2017 and 20 million. They'll, they'll reach an agreement. They're not that far off to hold this thing up. So they will go into the Big 12 next year in 2023. BYU will be in the. Big 12 next year, no matter what happens with those other three. Um, and then kind of a don't know what happens is you've got six schools that are leaving Conference USA to go to the American. Those schools have been told by Oresco they cannot join the AAC until Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF are gone to the Big 12. So they actually were required to give 14 months notice to Conference USA to give them their exact departure date. Well, that deadline passed a couple of weeks ago. Those schools, however, were given a one month extension, a one month, an extra month to give that notice because everyone kind of knows look, this, the three schools, the big 12 is going to happen. Then that opens the door, let those six schools leave Conference USA for the American also in 2023. But then the other remaining piece is Oklahoma, and Texas. If you were to ask me, when the news came out about who in Texas under the SEC July 1st, 2025, I thought there's no way they're staying in the big 12 that long. They will get out early. You look at all the recent conference expansion, realignment. you know, going back from, you know, Nebraska to the big 10, and there's a million and we could list everybody pretty much got out before they were supposed to based on the conference uh, bylaws. After talking to more and more people this week, uh, I was in Arizona, Big Ten, Big 12, Pac-12, and Mountain West meetings. I just get a real sense that Oklahoma and Texas will stay in the Big 12 uh, until they are allowed to leave by contract, which is July 1st, 2025. The main reason, surprise, surprise, money. It, it's going to cost them $80 million to leave the conference. If they leave early, they have to give up their media rights, and we're talking in excess of over $100 million to lead the Big 12 to the SEC. OU and Texas cannot recoup that money for just leaving one year early. So we're going to have OU and Texas in Texas and the uh, Big 12, I think, for the, the remainder of their, of their contracts. So obviously this year they've got a 10-team league in 22. And then in 23 and 24, I really believe we'll see Big 12 with 14 schools and what they were, the Big 12 officials were trying to figure out last week is, what do they do with that league? Do they split it in two 17 divisions? Do they keep it at one division? I think they'll go two 17 divisions. Um, but also, do you put OU and Texas in the same division? Do you put them in separate divisions? Obviously, the argument to keep them in the same division is, if they're in separate divisions and they happen to win the division, uh, the last thing the Big 12 schools want is an OU-Texas Big 12 championship game where all of the fans are chanting SEC, SEC the <laughs> from kickoff to final the final whistle. So I would be really surprised if OU and Texas are not in the same division. Obviously, no matter what divisions they're in, the final three years in the Big 12, they will certainly still play each other. They'll play each other in Dallas. Um, I joked with Dana Holmerson, the Houston coach, you know, when he gets to, uh, to the Big 12, he's back in the Big 12 again. He was there with West Virginia. And I said, hey, you, you know, the Big 12's got to make Texas come play Houston because Texas will never play at Houston ever, ever, ever. Um, but now, since they're the, going to be in the same conference for two years, they can make Texas go Tex, you know, play at Houston. And Dana said, well, I'm not really, you know, I'm just worried about this year. But, yeah, if that does happen, he goes, I guarantee it. They're also going to send me to West Virginia. <laughs> so that obviously will be uh, fascinating for Dana, but – But, yeah, uh, I think by the end of this month, those three schools will officially get this done. They'll be off to the Big Bub next year. Then those six Conference USA schools will be off to uh, the American. And then, obviously, you've got the four new schools coming from the FCS ranks and Independent Liberty and also New Mexico State. They will be joining Conference USA uh, also in 2023 when all these schools kind of make the moves at the same time.
0: Okay, so I I hear you say that, and I think to myself, all right, then if the number isn't going to work at $80 million, which I was going to ask you about that number, like could, could we be talking about potentially nine figures for these two teams which have national brands to go to the SEC, and could that number get up to $100 million? So, two-part question here: Is there a number that that would actually be able to work if it were somehow feasible with with Texas and Oklahoma leaving? And also at the same time, though, does the SEC lack motivation to add Texas and Oklahoma? Because if the current playoff system is staying at four teams, then doesn't it kind of benefit them more to kind of wait this out and say, hey, we don't necessarily want to have three years of this 16 team super conference when we know that there are still only four playoff spots available and it makes more sense to add them when the 12 team model is intact.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. The, the second, your second question, you're dead on. Yeah, and and also, you know, look, the SEC is leaving CBS for ESPN. I believe that's in twenty five, twenty six. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. You probably know, but so basically, there's a lot of moving parts there. And yeah, look, whether whether Oklahoma and Texas, if they stay the remainder of the time, they they've got to pay eight million. Like that's the lowest amount is eighty million. So any additional money would be if they leave early, and that's absolutely – that would go over $100 million. So they're already going to pay $80 million, and, you know, it's just not worth it to them. And there is really no incentive for the for the SEC to bring them in early. Um, you know, now that we know the playoff is going to remain at four teams for the next four years, you're right. You know, uh, having a 16-team conference when there's only four playoffers uh, – Probably is not the smartest thing, uh, you know. Certainly, the SEC could get two in; they've done it before. But I mean, just because you bring in Texas and Oklahoma, it's not like oh, now they're going to get three. I don't think that's realistic. Um, so I just think everything lines up better for the SEC, the new the new TV deal, and just financially for OU in Texas. That it just makes more sense. Hey, it's going to happen July first, twenty twenty-five. But again, it, you know, I would have thought when it was first announced you know a year or so ago that it would it would have got worked out but the big tw- also the big time tw- has no incentive to, to cut them a deal say okay you know what it's well we'll cut it down from 150 to 120 million but they have no they have no motivation no incentive to do that at all so they'll just have ou in texas in their league for the for the next three years and then they'll move on and then The Big 12 will be actually be at 12 again, uh, which will be uh, be nice. And then, uh, you know, see what happens when we expand the playoff uh, in 2027, and maybe there's some more movement at that point.
0: Are we sure that the playoff is going to get expanded now with the way that this is changing? I mean, you're going to probably hear the word Alliance said more times than you care to count this week with the ACC meetings, but are we sure that they will allow the playoff to actually expand? Because that's the thing, that that we need to remember. It's one thing to get the contract ripped up. It's got to be universal. It's got to be a unanimous decision with all the TV partners that are involved in this and the leagues and ESPN, all those different things. But to, to actually expand, we we have been talking about this contract that, that goes through 2025. And that 2026 would be the first season in which we'd see playoff expansion, maybe 12 teams, are we sure that's going to happen anymore? Because there is still a little possibility that we stay at four and the Alliance decides, you know what, we're going to still be as petty as possible and stick it to the SEC and let them try and figure things out with a 16-team super conference with a 14 playoff.
2: I mean, look, anything possible and anybody that tells you this is how it definitively is going to happen is lying because of the people at the, at the top of the food chain, college athletics, they don't know what's going to happen. But one big difference is, going forward, you know, to, to establish a new playoff format, whether it's two teams, for 16, or Mike Leach gets his dream and we have a 64-team playoff, that will, not, that will not have to be unanimous decision. That will just have to be a majority decision. Right. So that's a huge, huge difference. Because if that was the case right now and it was a majority, we'd be at 12. But it's not. The way it was written, it's unanimous. So that that will change – and one thing to keep your eye on, and I don't know if Greg Sankey's just, you know, if he's really a good poker player or if he really means this, but he has said this multiple times publicly and privately, that, hey, look, initially the SEC did not want to expand beyond four. Four is treated as great, uh, but we agreed we'd be in favor of 12. Now that that's not going to happen for the next four years, he said, don't don't mistake that we were in favor of this now, meaning that we will automatically be in favor of it next score round. You know, so what does that mean as far as the SEC? I don't know. Could they just say, you know, we're not going to do a 12-team format if it's not set up the way it is? Could it mean that they go a very drastic way and say, look, we're not going to be part of the playoff? You know, would they really just have a four-team SEC playoff? For their, you know, quasi national championship, certainly the other leagues do not want a, excuse me, do not want a, a national playoff without the most powerful conference. You know what? What does the, how does the Big Ten fit in this? They want to protect the Rose Bowl. They can. We'll have a new media rights deal announced sometime in the next few weeks. They're going to be making more money per school than any any league in the country, even the SEC. So how does that change the power dynamic? What is what, you know, you mentioned the alliance, you know, how much, uh you know, I, one thing I wonder is, uh, you know, I kind of understand the alliance. I kind of don't. But whatever, it's the alliance, Big Ten, Pac-12, ACC. Now you've got the Big Ten, the most powerful, richest conference in, you know, the next couple of years or so by far. So why are you aligning with the ACC? You make more money than them. It's not even close. You know, so what you want may not be the same as the ACC. So, you know, I'm not sold that those three are going to work lockstep together. As far as the playoff, they may in other things. They talked about non-conference scheduling and and other other factors. But, uh, you know, I do think we'll get to 12. Ultimately, Look, this was re- everything. This was re- everything in college athletics. It always comes back to it, and that's money. Going to a 12-team playoff will bring them more money. To which your next question, I know, I can even see thinking it. Then why didn't they go to 12 now instead of playing these these last last four years? Well, it got a little complicated because different people wanted different groups to. You know, was it the automatic <laughs> qualifying for the Power Five champs? Was it the highest ranked? conference chance. And then you have the ESPN factor where some of the leagues did not want ESPN just to be able to renew the playoff another 12 years and extend it out. They want competition from other networks because obviously that will increase the value of the playoff. That makes a lot of sense. So I think even though there are some differences now, they will get this resolved um, you know, by the time they, they finally figure this out. But one other thing real quick, that, that they've got a and look, it's like, well, they got time. They got, you know, we got four more years of four before this thing gets started. They got to start working on it and get this thing solved, like in the next, I'd say within the next nine months. And the reason is, you know, for anybody paying attention, the NFL just decided they now have Super Wild Card Weekend. What's that mean? That means the second week of January, they play three playoff games on that Saturday, three on Sunday, and now they added one on Monday night. Well, guess what? A 12-team playoff, that would have been a potential landing spot for a championship college football championship game. Now that day, it's not available. The NFL is not going to say, oh, wait, you guys wanted that date? Okay, we'll change the schedule. No, the NFL is gobbling up more and more real estate, more and more time slots, and now it's narrowing what is available for the college football playoff because – one thing college football players will never change, they've done from the start, they're smart, they're never going to change, they are never going to go head-to-head with the NFL. Never, ever, ever. So if the NFL are playing all these different dates, all these, all these weekends, all these different nights, that's why the New Year's Six games are never on Sunday when there's NFL games, they move go either to a Saturday or Monday. So that's something to keep your eye out of, because the NFL is already, already scheduling out, several years, and they're grabbing up a lot of these dates and times that would be perfect for an expanded college football playoff. So these commissioners, you know, yeah, you got to figure out how many teams you want, but you also got to figure out some of these dates – so that you're not playing the national title game, you know, Wednesday at 11 a.m. or some funky time like
0: that. Yeah, and and for those who say, well, why can't you have the national championship on a Saturday? That right there is it. It's because they they don't want to compete against the NFL, which, of course, adjusts to that Saturday scheduling late in the year. They obviously have those playoff games on Saturdays as well. They try and lock down those specific dates. Uh, Brett, something else that you reported. Atlanta is negotiating... Uh, to replace Vegas as the host for the title game at the end of the 2024 season, go figure that hosting the the Consumer Electronics Show in early January is the reason that Vegas can't really. That's meet. a big deal, man. I know. I go figure though. Like we're talking about the College Football Playoff. This is this is like. As the most cities would look at that and say, "Hey, hosting hosting a title game like that's that's the end all be all," and instead we find out that this event that so many sports fans are like, "Wait, what exactly is that?" That's actually the reason why they can't make this happen. So, if Atlanta gets, assuming that Atlanta gets this, and maybe I guess we're assuming we're talking about an expanded playoff format. Could we see a permanent host for the national championship like Atlanta? Or do you think they're going to want to have that flexibility and make sure that the national championship isn't a regional deal?
2: I think they want want to move it around. I think initially when they started, you know, started the playoff and it's a, a 12 year contract, they wanted to actually have a different city host for all 12 years. And that was, that was kind of the plan. And they were going to have, they were going to have Vegas do it. Um, And, you know, then Vegas wasn't able to do it. And then, you know, COVID, because of COVID, Miami, you know, basically they got, you know, they had reduced uh, seating for that game. So obviously they didn't, they didn't reap the financial rewards that most cities do and they host. So basically they're, they're rewarding Miami and letting them host the final year, 12 year deal. And then Vegas will host, or excuse me, Vegas, Atlanta will host it now that. Vegas couldn't, uh, they couldn't get the consumer electronics show t- to move their date. Vegas asked the college football playoff to move the title game back a week and they're like, no, we've, we've always got to play, you know, that second Monday or first Monday, depending on the calendar. Um, so they couldn't do that. But I think w- that's a good question because the, the challenge to the college football playoff now is when they first open it up for bids, you know, back, when it first started, there were—I don't—I don't remember exactly, but I think there were maybe like 15 to 18 cities that actually bid to host the college football playoff. That, that first go-around, obviously, that went to went to Dallas. Um, what's happened since then is because the cost of hosting the playoff to the cities—I mean, it's it's very expensive—and of those 18 cities. I'd say less than half of them even have any interest in hosting the playoff anymore because they simply financially can't afford to provide everything the college football playoff wants. Um, I've seen the RFP, which is basically the the form that the, the college football playoff sends to a prospective city, and basically it's a contract, and it outlines everything that that city or community must provide um, on the playoff and there's like a <laughs> like a running joke within folks at the different communities and cities that have been a part of it or or bid for it that there's a phrase in that contract and it says at no additional cost to the college football playoff Well, if you like search that document that that phrase shows up like 50 times it's ridiculous but i mean i understand the college football playoff doing that but also i think they've, they've outpriced themselves they Rose Bowl, the, you can. all The greatest venue for a college football game. They cannot host a college football playoff. The stadium's great. The setting's great. We all that. Financially, they can't do it. The city of Pasadena will not help them. The state of California will not help them. So financially, bowl game cannot provide the necessary funding to do that. Um, there's other other community of cities that can't do it. So now you're basically left to. Obviously, there's the six um, sites that rotate the New Year's six games and the college football playoff semifinals, including the Rose Bowl. I think those other five could host and would be open to hosting college football playoff. But then, what what gets challenging, and the reason why Atlanta is replacing Las Vegas is some of those cities are also hosting Super Bowls. They're hosting Final Fours. Um, they're also hosting semifinals. So now it it kind of narrows the available options for cities to host championship games. So ultimately, would they go to one site? I, I doubt it. I mean, I know it kind of makes sense a little bit. I do think they want to spread it around. They want to move it to different parts of the country. The problem is there are fewer and fewer sites that can do it. So maybe they get a smaller rotation, kind of similar to the Super Bowl bowl has got a little big rotation of school or of cities. Um, maybe cards football playoff does that, but has a smaller, um, smaller core
0: of cities that they rotated within. Last thing, uh, and I'll get you out of here, uh, I've wanted to ask you about this for a few years now. I, I remember being at Big Ten Media Days back in 2018 when you broke the Zach Smith story and how Urban Meyer knew about the domestic violence allegations. He apparently had covered up an arrest that he had at Florida and and, and Gene Smith didn't know about this arrest that Zach Smith had, like all these different things that started to come out. And, uh, you know, the domestic violence allegations were obviously really seriously, and it was a very uh, touch-and-go subject at the time. And and I've never seen a reporter so visibly frustrated with a coach answering questions, or I guess in this case, not answering them, which that's what Urban was essentially doing while he was there. What was that experience like for you? Because if I – I I don't really recall a story like that that became so much like a journalist against a massive football program the way it kind of became.
2: Yeah, I mean – and, look, when I initially reported the story, uh, you know, it was simply that Jack Smith, the former Ohio State wide receiver coach, had uh, committed uh, domestic violence on his, on his former wife, Courtney Smith, um, at Florida and then Ohio State, and he remained on Urban Meyer's staff. And the, the, the initial story I was doing was just kind of, you know, hey, here's Courtney's story. Uh, You know, I told her in the outset, you know, look, nobody is going to believe anything you say. I said, I I believe everything you tell me, but I need proof. If you tell me the sky's blue, I need a picture of a blue sky. And she was she was very organized. Uh, She had hundreds, thousands of emails. She had photos. She had text messages, everything with uh, copies of police reports, all this stuff. They backed everything up. All of my reporting with that, I, and look, I I use anonymous sources a ton. Everything I reported and in, involving Ohio State, Urban Meyer, Zach Smith, and Courtney Smith, I use zero anonymous sources. So that's something I, you know I'm, I'm proud about. But look, the initial story was just about Courtney and Zach. It Urban was not part of the story until, and I was in Chicago also for Big Ten Media Days. When Urban was asked about my report. And he basically said, I don't know how someone would create something like that. So then instead of it just being about Zach, who they fired four hours after I reported it, instead of it just being Zach and Courtney, now it's like, wait, Urban said he doesn't know anything. And so then I went back to Courtney and I'm like, Urban says he doesn't know anything. She obviously had a ton of text messages. Um, emails different things that showed otherwise and so then I went to okay well I will re- I'll go down that, that road and see where that takes me so then ultimately you know I reported that you know Urban you know the, the school then launches the the investigation based on that report and uh you know and then he gets he gets suspended after three games you know, I don't think they rather would, wouldn't have wanted to spend it at all. I think the president, the president then wanted to sus- really was a force in that and said, look, you know, this is pretty serious. We got to suspend him. He's he's no longer the president there anymore. Uh, but what's funny, is I mentioned earlier, I was I was in Arizona last week for Big Ten meetings and, and Pac-12, Big 12. So I was going to the airport, called an Uber and the guy pulls up and he's got an Ohio State license plate on the front of his car and i'm thinking oh boy so i get in and he's like hey how you doing i'm good he goes what are you in town for I said, "Oh, was some college football meetings and stuff and he goes oh what school are you from and i said oh i'm you know i'm not from the <laughs> school you know um he goes oh well who's like who's your team and i said well i'm an oklahoma state man so i'm you know i, I guess i root for oklahoma state a little bit i want them to do well and he's like uh well, so what are you doing at the meeting with him? I said, oh, I'm, I'm a reporter. He goes, oh, what do you report? I said, oh, I just do college, national college football. I'm with the Action Network. And he's like, okay. And, and then he kind, of, he kind of looked in the mirror. He kind of looked at me funny. And I said, I guess I should tell you now, or I guess I should wait until you drop me off, but I'll take a chance. I said, I'm the guy that broke all this stuff about Zach Smith and Urban Smith, Urban, Urban Meyer. And he's like, man, I thought you looked familiar. I thought you looked familiar. And then he's but but the guy was totally cool. He and the first thing he said is he goes, Look, I wanna tell you and I said, Wait, before you say anything, I think I know what you're gonna say, but go ahead and I'll tell you what I think you're gonna say. He goes, okay. He goes, Look, when he first reported that, he goes, I hated that. He goes, I was mad, I didn't like it because the way it the light it put my school and all that. But then after the fact, you know, you know, it showed, you know, what you report what you reported was was accurate. And he goes, You know what? He goes, we're better off with Brian Hartline at wide receiver coach and you know, Ryan Day has brought like a calming calming influence to the to the program. And I said, That's exactly what I thought you would say, because any Ohio State fans that I that I talked to that I know um, have told me that. At the time they didn't like it, they hate that, they hated me. Um but now it's like, you know, look Ohio State's wide receiving court with with Brent Hartline is, is ridiculous. And, you know, obviously Urban's had some other issues after leaving Ohio state with Jacksonville, everyone, we don't need to talk about that. So, you know, it was just, the guy's cool. And we talked, we had a great conversation, but it all goes back to, and I told, I told um, the guy, my Uber driver this, I said, when I first reported that I was on a Columbus radio station and the guy asked me a couple questions, and then he's like, "Hey, you know, some people say you have it out for Ohio State. I hate to say that." And I said, "Look, I just reported the news, you know." Except he's like, "Okay, well, some people say you had it out for Urban Meyer." I'm like, look, I think Urban, you know, is historically has been one of the most successful coaches in college football. You know, I didn't, I didn't uh, have an issue with Urban, you know. Except and he's like. Oh, you know, I just think, I said, hold on a second. I said, you told me earlier you've read everything, every single thing I've reported in the past few weeks regarding this subject, right? And he goes, yes. And I said, okay, let me, let me ask you a question. I want you to substitute Ohio State for Michigan and I want you to substitute Urban Meyer for Jim Harbaugh. Okay. Now tell me exactly what you have a problem with anything that I've reported in the last three months. And the radio host is like, well, uh, 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 stuttering around. I said, stop it. You answered my question. You don't have a problem with what I reported. You had a problem with who I reported about. I said, I've got another call. I got to go because I was about to drop F bumps because I was so pissed. But that basically, that sums it up right there. They never disputed that Zach didn't do it, that Urban didn't know. It. All these things, all they did was they wanted to shoot the messenger, literally, um, but then after the fact, you know, you look back and it's like, hey, Ohio State's in a much better place now. And again, and I've, I've said this a hundred times, if Meyer gets at Big Ten Me Day and, look, he had fired – I wrote the 1st six miss story the day before. They fired him four hours after I reported about Zach's – which, by the way, they already knew all this stuff. All, it, I just made it public. I knew that Zach had been – you know had these issues with domestic violence that was never that was never in question what it was is i it became public and i reported it they fired him four hours later the next day urban speaks had been 10 media days his agent his pr director at ohio state and gene smith dad all told him before he stepped up to the podium you're gonna get asked about zach smith just touch it briefly and then move on Urban could have said a million different things about that. It's unfortunate. We should have done something. We didn't. Look, we, that's in the past. We're moving on. Um, let's just talk about this year's team. Chris could have said all that. He didn't. He said the one thing that made me keep reporting, and that was I don't know how someone could create a story like that. He basically said, I'm this powerful coach. You're this reporter. Who, By the way, had been made off from ESPN and is posting stuff on his Facebook yep. page now. So how dare you try to take on mighty Urban Meyer and Ohio State? And it's so comical. I really believe that Urban Meyer would still be at Ohio State if he wouldn't have said that unless he would have went to the NFL. But obviously it would have been on his own terms, not the way it played out.
0: You you answered my question. I was going to ask you that exact thing. Is Would, would Urban Meyer have still been Ohio State's coach had that not happened? Because... You're 100% right, and that's the biggest thing that people forget about with this thing is, yeah, it kind of gets labeled as like, oh, Urban's got his health issues and whatnot, and that's why he's stepping down. And it all goes back to what he said at Big Ten Media Days. There have been very few things I've ever heard at a live press conference where I said, wait a minute, what, what did he just say? That is a catastrophic misstep on his part, and hubris is the only reason that Urban Meyer was in that spot, because you're exactly right. If he had come out and said, oh, you know, we had heard about this, and we had been able to take care of this, this, and this, even if he had said, I had heard about it, and we just didn't take proper action, it's a totally different story. But instead, he attacks you, and and he gets the Ohio State fan base all against you and it turns into this us versus them thing. And you, the fact that you're posting this literally, like you said, on your Facebook page, made this story into something that I don't think anybody could have foreseen had they just been like, oh yeah, you know, an assistant that gets fired because of domestic Yeah,
2: violence. like you could have said, you yeah, know, look, we, we knew about it, we didn't take the proper thing. It would be, okay, fine, you're like, that's it. He's still the coach. Maybe they suspend him for one game or something. I I, I seriously doubt they would have done that. They. They will said okay. We moved on that in the story, um, and the, and like you said, I was shocked when Urban said that. I remember talking to a reporter with one of the one of the Ohio State one of the Ohio State beat guys after Urban's press conference, and they told me that that this beat writer went up to the Ohio State PR guy, and he's like, "Dude, what's Urban doing?" Just you know. He's like basically calling out the, you know, one of the few reporters that's, that's rarely ever wrong. What is, what is he thinking? You know? And again, it just all goes back to, it's, you know, it's not the crime, you know, and I'm not, in no way, i to make this clear, in no way am I diminishing or minimizing the incredibly horrible things that Courtney Smith dealt with and put up with. But basically it wasn't the crime it was the cover-up that's what you know that's what derailed her meyer at ohio state
0: unbelievable stuff uh brett I, I really appreciate the time man uh safe travels and uh stay sane on those those florida highways man
2: hey thanks for having me i appreciate it
0: i'm now excited to be joined by a very special guest it is former tight end current college football analyst podcast co- podcast host adam brenneman uh adam got a ton of stuff that that i want to get to with you but we first got to start with the uh the jordan addison stuff if I'm not mistaken, you were the one who broke that story on Friday night. Tell me how all that went down.
3: Yeah, well, I appreciate you having me on. And and I had been hearing about the Jordan Addison stuff for uh, probably about a week leading up to Friday night. And, you know, it wasn't exactly a secret in college football circles that Jordan Addison was a little bit unhappy at Pitt. I mean, it makes sense. He just lost his offensive coordinator, Mark Whipple, who I know is a big part of his success. And uh he lost his quarterback, Kenny Pickett. Obviously, um, Brennan Marion, receiver coach, left to go to Texas. Uh, so it, it wasn't it wasn't a big a big secret. At least in like some of the you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. I have a lot of connections at Pitt. Um, just a lot of fam- familiarity with that program. So I've been hearing about it for a while. Uh, and I had uh, really things started to heat up Friday night. Um, and I, th- I believe um, from everything I've been told, that's the day that that he had. Uh, actually met with with the coaches um, and informed the coaches that he was going to enter the transfer portal and from everything I've been told that that usc was if not the determination at that the, if he had not determined he was going to USc at that point it was very close to that point um and uh, obviously a lot of assumptions get made as far as how that happens uh you know nowadays with the NIL and boosters and collectives. So a lot of conversations can be had with agents and things like that. But, um, you know, and, and was told that that the Pitt staff was very frustrated with USC at the time. So uh, that's kind of when I took to Twitter and just, I had felt there were enough legs with the rumor that I'd been hearing for a while that, that uh, it was going to get out one way or another. And, and um, you know, I kind of felt like it was credible enough to at least, at least uh, put it out there with the, with the rumor tag on it. <laughs>
0: And it was, it ended up being spot on. I mean, and it kind of, it's very hard to get draft Twitter off of something, Um, (laughs) at least in the college football space. Man, that when that hit Friday night, it was like, oh crap. And that kind of feels like the way that this has gone for for the past 10 months now of of seeing some of these things develop and everybody, whenever it's something that hasn't happened before with NIL, people ask, well, is this killing the sport? Is what does this mean? What's the big picture thing? And I I totally understand it because some of some of this stuff does feel so new. You've got a variety of experience in, in this sport, both, former player, former coach, and now in the media. So I put your opinion in high regard when it comes to, to matters like this. What was your biggest takeaway from from seeing the way that this kind of played out with, with him putting his name into the portal just before that all-important May 1st deadline?
3: Yeah, I, I, I'm a proponent and an advocate for the transfer portal, and I've also been one for NIL for a long time. I, I believe when coaches can get up and leave right away, And get up and just take the best job, and get up and and you know go from one program to another, follow a head coach around. I think I don't think it's the worst thing for players to have that freedom and flexibility as well. Uh, I also have have been a proponent for NIL for a while and have said that if it's a business for the players, it's a I mean excuse me, if it's a business for the coaches and a business for the administrators and a business for the TV networks and a business for the media personalities, then it should be a business for the players too. Uh, But what we've see now in college football is the combination of all of that together the transfer portal the NIL um it, the one-time transfer waiver allowing guys to play right away when they transfer the combination of it all, it's no longer NIL related. It's just pay for play. And and, and it's just um, boosters and donors buying the best team, which isn't good for the sport. It's not good for the players. Um, and it's not, it's not sustainable long-term, but uh, obviously the Jordan Aston situation, like you said, brought a lot of eyeballs on that situation because it was the perfect storm, right? One of the best players in college football, uh, right before the transfer deadline, uh, a, a lot of accusations of tampering coming in which you know i I'm, I'm not sure i'm not sure if the tampering stuff has really been substantiated um but i know that you know how I could saw it not that- be though like right like, I, like, I mean that's, uh, that's the thing
0: we, we we know that there's got to be something in there because you're not getting up and doing something like that unless there's something on the other side waiting for you
3: for sure and and i, I think um I think uh, USC's defense would probably be that. Maybe maybe an outside party had, had done it. Maybe he talked to Caleb Williams. You know, I, I just know what they will say. Because, you know, at the end of the day, tampering's been going on at college football for a long time. And it's kind of the unspoken rule where – uh, a lot of coaches won't point fingers at each other because they don't want the finger pointed back at them, <laughs> you know. So they, they kind of j- just stay quiet about it. But I know, I mean, you know, a lot of the a lot of the numbers getting thrown around were substantiated by I saw Pittsburgh Post Gazette reported that there were like two three million dollar deal on the line for Jordan Addison to leave Pitt. J- just ridiculous numbers that um, that. You know, when 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 you get this combination of all these different factors, NIL, transfer portal, one time waiver, the 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 recruiting the way recruiting is in college football with the high stakes, winning at all costs, the, the combination of it isn't isn't good for the sport. You brought up a great point about Kenny Pickett. He only got about a hundred thousand
0: in NIL earnings yeah. at Pitt last year, which in my opinion, that's a bad look for Pitt. Like if I if I'm if I'm seeing that number, I'm like, oh boy, we got to change in a hurry because you've got a quarterback who had this ridiculously good season. He gets to New York for the Heisman ceremony and he only rolls in a hundred thousand dollars. Meanwhile, Bryce Young gets over a million dollars before he ever It starts a game at Alabama. Pitt doesn't have a collective and go figure USC doesn't either. But obviously they're they're finding ways to be able to work around that and still make sure those compensation packages are there in the transfer portal. To me, I I look at Pitt as kind of a cautionary tale for why everyone needs collectives if they're going to be able to compete. Because I know that Jordan Addison had NIL deals. I saw he had the truck deal. I know he had his apparel company and all those different things but you have got to make sure that guys are getting as many of these opportunities as possible because this is the new world that we live
3: in. Yeah, I'm with you. And I think you're seeing as much as coaches don't like it, it's the world they got to adapt to. Um, I was listening to James Franklin talk about it on the Rich Eisen show the other day. And, And I know, you know, he, he's not, he doesn't love the collective world and what they have to do now, but you know, you got to You got to do it to compete, and and you better find opportunities and ways to incentivize these kids financially until something happens, until the NCA comes in, or until some regulatory arm comes in and and does something to at least control it a little bit and control kind of the the tampering and the and the transfers and all that kind of stuff. So uh, it's definitely definitely um, you know a, a good example from Pitt. Um, you know, it, it's not it's not easy, and and for a guy like Kenny Pickett. It's a perfect example of, of why the combination of NIL with the portal with being able to play right away all together, um, you know, can be it can it can be encouraging for guys to want to leave their school and go test the open market because Kenny Pickett on the open market last year probably would have been a, a million dollar, two million dollar NIL guy. Um, but when he stays at pit, he's not, his value is not, not as high as it would have been if he was transferring. Uh, and and that's just the reality, you know, no one's, no one's trying to keep him at pit. So they're, so they're only giving him what he's actually worth to a business. And that was my point when I had my tweet the other day. Um, you know, I, I tweeted out a long thread about, about my thoughts on NIL got a lot of, got a lot of love and also a lot of hate. So I got a lot of, a lot of flack on the negative side of it too. And my point was that a lot of the defense on NIL right now, people are talking about, well, if that's what the market will pay them, then that's what the market will pay them. You know, if that's what they're worth to a business or worth to a donor, then that's what they're worth. And, and that's, just, that's just the free market. And, and I, while well, I understand that point, my point was that, what NIL was intended to be was marketing deals and endorsement deals for players. It's, it's the quarterback doing a commercial for the car dealership. It's the lineman getting a deal with the steakhouse to, to make 10 grand to go, to go do an ad for them. Um, and, and the deals we're seeing are not actually marketing deals or endorsement deals. It has nothing to do. Jordan Addison probably isn't actually worth $3 million to a local business. I mean, there's no way that they're getting that return on their investment on a, on a college football player. Um, what, what he's actually worth is, you know, who knows, but NFL players don't make $3 million a year. I have tons of guys that are stars in the league. They're always complaining about how they can't make any money on marketing deals. I mean, they make some, they'll make a couple hundred grand, but they're not making millions because, you know, unless you're, unless you're, you know, Joe Burrow, but you know my point is that the money we're seeing it, it isn't NIL it's no longer NIL it's not what a player is actually worth to a business it's not doing endorsement deals or marketing deals it's, it's it's just pay for play and and let's just call it what it is and not pretend that that's actually what these players are worth on marketing value to companies and or or on the or on the true business market and and that was kind of where I was going down with that with that tweet was just that you know if we're going to call it NIL um, then, then we then we need to acknowledge that what's happening is not what nil was intended to be.
0: The issue being the NCAA enforcing what market value truly is seems impossible. I, I mean, it really sure. does. It, like that, and that I understand that was the original intent of the rule, but you have now seen an organization that has essentially thrown its hands up and said, well, if you guys want it this way so badly, then you guys just kind of figure it out. And now we're all of a sudden going to rely on the NCAA to determine what market value is like to me that I scratched my head at that. Like I saw the Ross Dellinger story for sports illustrated where the NCAA is going to attempt to crack down on boosters, just giving money and not really following any sort of NIL guideline and just being paid from play. And I'm like, all right, good luck. Um, this is the same organization that admitted that it was overwhelmed by the waiver process process in the transfer portal and couldn't <laughs> handle that. So why am I all of a sudden going to yeah. expect them to go in and figure out, well, you know what, actually this player isn't really worth $500,000 to do a couple of ads. Like they're not going to do that, they, but I at least will give him, I'll at least give the NCAA the slight credit of coming out and saying something as opposed to doing yeah. nothing, which is what they've done to this point. How do you like the NCAA's chances to be able to make any sort of impact with a, with a movement like that?
3: Yeah, I mean I wouldn't put any money on it if I was <laughs> if, if I was uh if I was a betting man. I mean the 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 NCA isn't this kind of the perfect um Symbolic representation of what the NCA is. I mean, the, just the fact that they allowed NIL to come about with just no plan, no regulation. Just it, they just bopped out out of, out of the court system, and and uh, the NCA just said, "Well, yeah, there it is." You know, it's a perfect example of just what the NCA has been for the last for the last few years, and um, and really, I think. I, I, I think you know you make a good point about not being able to, to regulate market value, and I, and and I agree. I, I don't even think that that's the angle they take. I think what I think, and I don't have the answers. If I did have the answer, I'd, I'd be making a lot more money than I am now, probably fixing it for the NCA. But I, I think at the end of the day, you have to um you you have to try to regulate it from putting play, making sure players aren't in that situation where these three $5 million NIL deals just to get them to leave or transfer can come about. Um, And that's more so tampering um, the transfer portal uh, it happening in high school when guys are getting recruited. So I, I think, I don't think there's, I don't think we're, there's no, any going back on NIL. I think NIL is here to stay. Players are going to be able to do deals, but it's trying to, it's finding a way, I think on the other side of it, to make sure that, or, or to try to limit the, the situations like the Jordan Addison one that we're seeing. And, and trying to limit a situation where guys can be contacted before they're in the portal, where guys can be contacted by collectives and not have to go through the school. Um, I, I just think there's a lot of ways outside of, you know, outside of saying, let's just not do NIL uh, to, to try to put some kind of regulation on it. Um, and, and, you know, and, and again, I'm all for the players making, making money. I want that to happen. Like that, that's, I've been a big time advocate for it. And we kind before we got on, we were talking about my college football career. Like I didn't make any money playing football. And I, I, I was an all American three-time all American in college. I had a knee injury and stopped playing. If I had NIL in college, I mean, I, I it would have helped me a lot just on my in my young career, but I didn't have it. So I'm a big proponent of it. But again, I think anyone who's been through the sport and loves college football sees what's happening and says that, number one, this isn't sustainable. And, and number two, it's not good for the players and it's not good for the sports with what's happening right now.
0: I was going to bring that up to you about how you would have killed it with NIL stuff, especially <laughs> when you're a guy like a local guy who pops immediately. Like that's, yeah. those are the type of guys that can really make that big time opportunity. Like you go from being, for those who don't know necessarily your backstory um, who are listening to this and maybe have more of an ICC background, you're an all American tight end at Penn state as, as a, as a freshman. And then you had the, you have the knee injury, you know, 2014 is rough 2015. Again, like it's just kind of rough. You can't, you can't quite, get the momentum to be able to to stay on the field. You look like you're done with football and then you go to UMass and then you have this great resurgence and it's kind of like, wow, like look look at Adam Brenneman, look what he's able to, to to kind of put together and do. You actually worked for a media consulting company in between that, that time of playing football at Penn state and playing at UMass where you're like, all right, I'm for five months. I'm going to kind of get away from it. Can you take me back to to what that decision was like, because that's a very atypical thing for a guy who in your position, like you're probably thinking, man, I I could be getting ready for the NFL draft. And here I am pursuing something entirely different. Your, your head was probably spinning during that time.
3: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question that, that there's been a lot of twists and turns in my, in my football career. um, And even outside of football, but, but, uh, but really, you know, I was at Penn state had a had a really good freshman season, you know, like you said, went to Penn state with a lot of hype and a lot of, a lot of attention. Obviously it was, it was in the middle of the, of the Penn state scandal. And that, that was in um, the early 2010s and, and, uh, and was a, was a big time four or five star recruit. So went there with a lot of attention, a lot of hype, which, you know, is, is, you know, always, always interesting for a 17, 18 year old to deal with. Um, so go to Penn state was, a uh, as a, had a freshman all American season with Bill O'Brien, Bill O'Brien leaves, Uh, James Franklin comes in very first spring with James Franklin during, you know, during my second year at Penn state, I, I fell on my knee and, uh, and it kind of swelled up a little bit, fell on it during spring practice, swelled up, but didn't really think anything of it came back a few days later, but my knee just was bothering me a lot throughout the rest of spring. Come to summertime, I finally get an MRI on my knee and they find out that I had chipped a piece of cartilage off of my knee where (sighs) I was, where I was bone on bone. So basically like, it's called articular cartilage um, and basically it protects your bones from hitting each other. So this happened and the doctors were kind of like, well, this is something that we're going to w- want to keep an eye on long story short. And, and I'll keep this brief. We next two years were a disaster. Had knee surgery, surgery ended up not going well, missed two seasons in a row was really in a, just a, not a great place mentally at the time. Like uh, after missing two seasons, I was just like, man, am I like, why even play football? Like my knees messed up, you know, and and I, it was also tough. You know, I had a lot of expectations and attention when I went to Penn state and to not really be able to play for two years in a row is, is, uh, is not easy. You know, it's not easy to walk around campus when you feel like you're not contributing at all to the, to the program. Um, And at that point I had gotten my degree. I graduated early from Penn state um, from taking summer classes and stuff like that. So I said, I'm just going to go try doing something else. And uh, so, like you said, I started working, um, for this company, from my in my hometown, I was like 20 years old, didn't, had no clue what I wanted to do, uh, and then a few months go by, and and uh, my knee starts feeling a little bit better from just taking time off, probably, and I get a call from Mark Whipple, who was the who his son Austin was my uh, was my roommate at Penn State. He, his son Austin was a walk on quarterback at Penn State with us. His dad, Mark Whipple, was he was the quarterbacks coach with I believe the Browns at the time, maybe the Eagles. He was he had been all over the place. He was with the Steelers for a while, and he had just gotten the head coaching job at UMass. Um, and Mark Whipple calls me, and he's like, "Hey, like if you come to UMass, like." You, you know, you don't really got to practice all that much because your knee. We'll, we'll, we'll manage your knee the right way and not make you like compete a ton, which is what I needed with my, the, the state of my knee. And he's like, I'll throw you the ball 15 times a game. So, <laughs> so I, uh, Soul. it's funny, man. I, yeah. I, I, uh, I, uh, I t- took an official visit you know and, and at this point everyone thought I was retired from football like I, yeah. I, I was done I was working making money and um just kind of made the, made the decision to go keep playing at UMass and and get, got my master's degree there but really just felt like you only get one chance to go do this thing and and uh, I always felt like, I felt like I could play in the NFL that was always like my mindset and that's why I wanted to do it is to try to chase that dream and I was there for two years, um, like you said earlier, and had two all-American seasons, caught a lot of passes, um, broke some records at UMass. But you know, the whole time though, my my knee just wasn't sustainable for um, to play in the NFL. It it I was it was deteriorating when I was at UMass. I was having to get injections, you know, painkillers and things like that to be able to play. It just it just wasn't sustainable. Went to the Senior Bowl uh, after after my after my second season at UMass. Um, Bill O'Brien was the head coach of the senior bowl. So the whole, the whole thing came full circle. Um, but there, you know, failed a couple of physicals and just, just kind of went downhill from there and ended up retired after my, after my season at UMass. But yeah, it was definitely an interesting time of kind of going trying to figure out a way to play. And if I wanted to play, if I could play, it was, it was kind of a, a, a tough long, like five years in my college football career. But when I look back on it, there's a lot that I'm, that I'm proud of and and proud of kind of the perseverance through it would have loved to play in the NFL. I mean, that's something that's still, you know, to this day is like something that, 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 stinks to like watch the draft and think that I could have been there. But at the end of the day, there's all part of a bigger plan. And I've always felt like there were things I always wanted to do other than just play football in life. You know, I think that's something I always tell young athletes, like you got to have some stuff other than just playing football that you're interested in and that you want to do. Cause when it does end, you got like, you're going to have some, you need to have some kind of passion outside of it. So, um, yeah, there, there, there. There's the uh, there's the answer to how I ended up going uh, five months for a media consulting firm between my between my two schools. <laughs> it's a
0: wild college career, and, and I think there sure. are a lot of a lot of not just Penn State fans, but college football fans in general, that look back on that 2013 Penn State team that just yeah. kind of surprised a lot of people, and everybody's expecting like really you know low expectations, and obviously Hackenberg comes in, and I think there are a lot of people that that look back and just kind of wonder, man, like. What happened? And with with Hackenberg, is it as simple as Bill O'Brien leaving? Like, does his career turn out differently if Bill O'Brien stays there and he gets to play for him? Or is it was it like, hey, with the offensive line restrictions that you guys had, Hackenberg was probably always going to get just demolished and his career was always probably going to take that kind of turn. Like, have have you kind of thought about like? how his career, like all the sliding doors and the what ifs, because it's such a weird career to look back on and wonder like how things could have been different with him.
3: No, it definitely is. And you know, Hacks a really good friend of mine and yeah, we we've talked about it a lot. And, uh, and, and, you know, I'll say like hack has some of the most natural, uh, arm talent that I've ever been around. I mean, he can sling it and he's got a really strong arm and he's really, really smart. And obviously that first year with Bill O'Brien, um, was really successful. You know, I think there are a lot of factors that play there. You had Bill O'Brien who's kind of a quarterback specialist, um, per se, um, had Tom Brady the year before. So kind of a perfect storm there. Um, you know, Alan Robinson was the, was the receiver on the team his freshman year. Um, so circumstances were really good for success and, and hack worked his butt off and was, and was ready to play and was super mature. And I think, uh, you know, I, I think whenever you have a coaching change, whenever things, um, whenever things get as whenever circumstances change, you know, it, 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 it opens up the door for, you know, different careers to take different trajectories. And I think at the end of the day, you you are right in that. The scholarship limitations at the end of the day at Penn State had more impact on the offensive line than any other position and had more impact through that on the quarterback position. Um, You know, so I, I do think that even with Bill O'Brien, there would have been the offensive line problem and the problem of staying clean. You know, I, it's not a secret that in 2014, 2015, the offense, I mean, just wasn't very good. I mean, it, there were a lot of problems around it. Uh, and I think a, a lot of it was not just on hack or the quarterback position, but just a lot of it. The scheme, we didn't have playmakers. The offensive line was was bad i mean you know we had it, it was before kind of the 2016 team kind of got there in 16 you had Kasiki and saquon and all those guys but 14 to 15 that was still you know kasicki was still getting used to his body i was hurt the whole time i mean there was just a lot of a lot of guys playing that weren't the best playmakers or weren't helping hack that much so it is tough that's a, that's a career that like you look back on it. it's it's still you know, it still shocks me that like he's not in the NFL because he's he's such a talented dude and um, such a good guy and really, really smart, loves the game of football. Uh, but it's just a good example and, of uh, that the NFL stands for not for long, right? And you never know what circumstances. I, I also think um, – you know he he got drafted to not a great situation. Bad, um, couldn't have been worse. Couldn't have been worse. Like the worst place to get drafted to. Um, you know, so many different things you could look at that thing. I think maybe take a turn one way or another if he catches a break, but he didn't. And. And uh, you know, that's just kind of it now. But he's he's enjoying life, man. He's he's such a good dude and and uh and he's kind of been doing some media stuff too. You might have, to have him on sometime to talk about his uh his career. But he's 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 kind of doing the media circle now. He's doing the the, the former NFL quarterback media gigs now, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's and there's trust me, like there's a lot of people that that would love to to hear his story because it's it's pretty typical of the way that it turned out to have the success that he did as a true freshman and then the way that things just like they would show up in flashes, but then you watch the game like the Temple game and that opener in twenty fifteen. Oh, yeah. You're just like, oh my God, like he's getting sacked ten times by Temple. Like this is this yeah. is a problem. Um, but yeah, that that is one of the the great what ifs in my opinion. And and Bill O'Brien being associated with that, there are a lot of Alabama fans who see Bill O'Brien and they're like, he's not as good as Sark. The play calling is not quite there. And oh, by the way, he just helped uh, an Alabama quarterback win the Heisman Trophy for the first time ever. But there, there are a lot of people who are kind of frustrated with Bill O'Brien last year, which sounds crazy given how prolific the offense was, but it's some of it's because of the play calling. Are you a a Bill O'Brien apologist?
3: I love Bill O'Brien, man. <laughs> that's that's uh, that that that's that, that's my guy. It was definitely tough when he left, though. I, I'm not. I'm not. I won't lie about that. That was a, uh, you know, that was. You know, w- when we went to Penn State, a lot of the reason we went there was because of Bill O'Brien. I mean, there. The, when you think back to that time at Penn State, I mean, there weren't a whole lot of other reasons to go to Penn State. Yeah. I mean, you had some big time sanctions and uh, things were kind of disastrous around that program. A lot of outside noise and couldn't play in bowl games. And I mean, w- so when we went there, it was it was for Bill. I mean, we we loved Coach O'Brien and and uh, we wanted to play for him. And yeah, that was tough when he left. I know. I know hack hack didn't take it. Well, when, when, it, when it happened, just cause especially for at the quarterback position, I'm a tight end. So, you know, it's like, you know, is what it is to move on to the next coach. But, um, you know, for hack, I know it was really tough and, and, um, you know, but, but, uh, yeah, it's just, it, again, it's interesting to think about what it would be like if he would have stayed for a few more years. Um, and who knows, like, would the same thing would have happened? I don't know. But I think that, you know, just the consistency and stability for Hack would have been good, um, when he was there. But yeah, but Bill O'Brien's been really good to me throughout, even throughout my, um, post playing career. He's been awesome, um, been helpful in a lot of regards. His family's awesome. His wife, Colleen's great. So yeah, I love, I love Bill O'Brien. I'm excited to see him be a head coach again soon.
0: I know you're only with him for, uh, for one year, 2015, and you, you were hurt for a lot of that year, but do you have a, a Saquon story that stands out?
3: Oh boy. I don't know if I have a specific Saquon story. I mean, I just remember being, you know, 2015 and, and having this freshman kid that was just like way more mature than everyone else that was around. Um, yeah, I know it's like cliche to say, but like you really could tell like in the very beginning that he was going to be really special. And it was just a matter of time until he became the starting running back. It was kind of one of those deals like we had another starter, but you're just like waiting for a couple of games in to make Saquon the starter. Uh, yeah, he, he's always been been special and a really good kid, like uh, like really down to earth and um, you know, I, I just saw him, we were all at, uh, Mike Kusicki's wedding a few weeks ago. So, uh, so all the, all the, all the boys were there from the Penn state team. Saquon was there and got to see him there. So, yeah, you know, he, he's, uh, he's such a good, good person, you know, hard worker as, as you know, but was always mature from a young age and always had the massive quads, you know, like just looked like a man when he was 18 years old, 17 years old, whatever he was pulling up the state college.
0: Yeah. The, uh, the workout videos, once you kind of see those, you're just like, Oh my God, he's how old and he's, and he's doing know, some right? of this stuff. Like it's just, it, it's silly for, for those who don't know. And I think some of the injuries in the NFL has kind of, you know, overshadowed some of that, um, yeah. watching Penn state in 2016, where, where Penn state has this resurgent year. And obviously you had a great year at UMass and what you were able to do over there. You still had so many, so many close friends on that team though. But, Was it kind of tough to watch that and not necessarily be a part of it, to watch them go from the team who, um, quite frankly, couldn't get out of its own way at at times, especially during 2015, where it's like, yeah, but who have they beat? And then to go to have this this year in 2016 where they're knocking on the door of a playoff, they get to go to the Rose Bowl. How how tough was it to kind of sit back and watch that, knowing that you were one of the reasons that they were able to not be a dumpster fire early on post-sanctions?
3: Yeah, no, I actually got that question a decent amount when it was happening. I remember, I actually remember where I was watching the Big Ten Championship game. I was at a at a bar in Amherst, Massachusetts at UMass, like watching the Big Ten Championship game on TV with some buddies and they were all like, man, that sucks. You can't be there. Um, but to be honest with you, man, like I, there was really never that thought of like, oh, I wish I was there just because like I was off at UMass, like doing my own thing and ha- having a lot more success than I probably would have had at Penn State. Um, you know, I just caught like 75 passes in my first season at UMass when they were playing in that game and then one of my one of my really good friends Mike Kosicki's at Penn State as a starting tight end and like playing really well and had a big season and um you know I was more so just happy for all those guys and happy for you know what they were able to do and and I think you you mentioned like the sanctions and getting through that I, I think it is funny even now 10 years later like people still don't talk about or, or, you know, always forget that where that program was 10 years ago. Um, and at the time when the, when, when, uh, when they won the Big 10 five, it was five years ago then, um, you know, when when those sanctions came out, people said that Penn State wouldn't be able to field a team. They wouldn't be able to, uh, they'll be like Temple for the next, for, you know, they'll, they'll be FC. It'll be D1 AA. Like no one will want to go there. It's the end of the program. And to have that kind of resurgence and be in the Big Ten Charisher game and win it five years later or whatever it was is 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 special. And I feel like we played a small part in it, just trying to hold that place together and give it hope when we went there. Um, you know, we went to Penn State in 2013. Like, like, I, like I just said, for not a lot, there weren't a lot of reasons to go there. There. It was really just number one, Bill O'Brien. And number two, like the love of the school and the program and wanting to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Um, and it was cool. So when, when Penn State uh, won the Bay 10 Championship, like you said, I was at UMass. Uh, Bill O'Brien texted me after and said something like, um, you know, I saw Penn State won tonight. Like just know that like you played a big part in that, even though you're not there and, and you know, something like that, which was really cool. I forget the exact wording, but it was really cool because he didn't have to do that. Um, and I know, I know Coach O'Brien, you know, he, he would never admit this, but he played a big role in that as well. And what he was able to do and hold holding that place together. You know, he, he was kind of the perfect fit for that bridge transition between Joe Paterno and, and James Franklin. And I think, I think Coach O'Brien was probably the perfect, the perfect guy for that job. You know, and was able to hold that place together, you know, when, when it seemed to be crumbling around him.
0: You uh, you got into coaching after your playing career ended. We don't need to get into the stuff that happened at Arizona State, but I'll instead ask this: How strong is that that itch for you to get back into coaching?
3: Yeah, it, good question. It's something I think about a lot and and try to decide kind of if that's something I want to go back into. Um, it, I love football. I love being around it. Um, I loved coaching. I mean, you know, I was at ASU. Uh, went to ASU on a whim. I mean, I was in. I was. I was working in Pennsylvania. Uh, was doing some, starting to do some media stuff at a podcast was doing a Penn state football show on CBS sports radio. So it was kind of getting my feet wet in media. And I just get a call one day from, uh, Joe Conley was my strength coach at UMass. Um, and then had just gotten hired as a strength coach at ASU. So he calls me and he's like, Hey, would you want to, uh, would you want to come? be our like tight ends GA at at ASU. Like come just coach the tight ends, but you'll be the GA. So you won't make any money. (laughs) You'll make like grand, whatever. So, but but again, it's ASU. You got Marvin Lewis, you got Herm Edwards, you got Antonio Pierce, you got all these guys. And and ASU was kind of a hot program at the time of like, that's a really cool place to be. So, I mean, I was like, yeah, I'll do it. Like, why not? I'm 24 years old. Like, why not go move across the country and do that? So, you know, I had a call that day with Zach Hill, the offensive coordinator and Herm Edwards and the coaching I, I'd known for a while because he was he was my coach at the Under Armour American game when I was yep. in high school. And um, so literally, that's like a Wednesday and like Saturday, I moved to Arizona, um, just pick up everything and leave. And I've been in, been in Arizona since then. But, you know, was a GA for a year it was the COVID year and then, and then got promoted after one year to tight ends coach. And, um, so that was really cool. I was 25 years old and coaching, had my own position room in the power five level, which was like, I was at that point, I was like, man, I'll be coaching forever. Like, this is like, I I made it, you know, this is it. And then obviously, um, you know, the kind of the fiasco that ensued at Arizona state and, uh, you know, occurred like six months later and, and you know, I, I think I, I've learned a lot through that time, and I learned a lot about just, um, just, you know, a, a lot about what that profession is, and you know, you can make a big impact on people, but it's definitely a grind. and It is definitely, um, there's a lot of bad things that go on around it. And there's a lot of, um, things that aren't real sustainable, but like for college sports, I, it's, there's just a lot, a lot at stake in that world. And, and I love that, like high stakes, high pace, uh, atmosphere, but, you know, just trying to evaluate if that's something I want to get back into and, and, and what that really looks like. But I mean, I lo- I loved it. I love being around the players. I love being around the guys. I mean, Curtis Hodges, who was one of the tight ends. I got the coach got signed this weekend by the Washington commanders. So like just seeing that was awesome, you know, it, it, so that the, there are a lot of pros to it, but as you know, man, you, if you ask any coach, you know, a lot of them, you know, it's funny. You, you talked to a lot of coaches. I was talking to a lot of them when I was getting into it and I would call them and be like, Hey, I want to get into coaching. They're all like, are you sure you want to get into coaching? Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it, it, this whole thing has been a good learning experience for me and, and obviously the, the Arizona state kind of situation is ongoing and, and, uh, you know, but I learned a lot about kind of just, just making sure, you know, that you're trusting the right people and, and, um, you know, j- just learned a lot about, about organizationally and and how things work inside college football programs and, and, uh, you know, made, made a lot of really good friends and some, some, uh, close relationships, but obviously, um, you know, didn't love how things ended there.
0: Having seen it now as a coach, player, media, um, what do you you think of the way that the tight end position has evolved in college football? Because it seems like teams are more than willing to embrace 12 personnel, throwing out of 12 personnel. We're seeing more of kind of these hybrid guys, the Brock Bowers, the Jaheen Bells, the Eric Gilberts. Uh, How how do you think the position is kind of evolving with modern offenses?
3: Yeah, I I think we've seen the tight end position really become – kind of the cool, sexy position to play or one of, one of the cool positions. It used to be lame to be a tight end. Like when I was in high school, no one wanted to be a tight end. <laughs> and then really the, I, I really think the turning point was that that Patriots team with Gronk and Hernandez that yeah. was making the run and they were, they were the 12 personnel duo. And, uh, you know, I, I think teams are seeing now that you can do so many different things with 12 personnel, um, even whether it's 11, 12, 13, um, the ability to move a tight end all over the field the ability to come out in 12 personnel have a team think you're going to run the ball, which is what every, every team that comes out in 12, the defense is now thinking they're running the ball and to be able to go spread and then be able to spread them out and then come back in and run the ball and run power and then go, go no huddle and go spread again. Like the ability to do this different stuff. And then the whole time the defense has their base defense on the field, you know? So it's, it's a personnel game for an offense. You know, if the, if, if, uh, if a, if a defense wants to play 12 personnel with a nickel package and, and says like, well, these are receiving tight ends, well, then you better have the tight ends that can go in there and just run power on them when they don't have their base defense in there. So uh, th- there's a lot of advantages to having big time tight ends. And I think you're seeing, too, that they can stretch the field vertically. And w- when you have a tight end who can open up the middle of the field and make make plays inside the hashes down the seam it's really good for the quarterback, really good for, um, you know, really good for for an offense and opens things up. And I think you're seeing too, a lot of young QBs like tight ends because they're easy targets. They're big, uh, very forgiving. You know, if you miss them a little bit here and there, they can normally catch the ball because they have big catch radiuses. So uh, I think the position's going to continue to evolve and you're seeing more and more teams put high value on tight ends. You're seeing tight ends go in the first round, second round this past year, but um, but you, you're seeing seeing tight ends get paid more and go a little higher than they used to. I think George is going to run 14 personnel this year. I think that's that's going to happen. When they do, you oh. got to clip that. I'll tell you what Brock Bowers is one of the best I've seen in a a while. I mean, he's, I remember watching him when he was in high school, I was, I was at ASU and we were obviously, you know, trying to recruit him, but you know, there was no chance he was coming to ASU. West coast guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he, uh, but he's a, he's a beast. I mean, he's, he was one of the best, probably the best I saw in high school at the time. And, and his, his maturity is, is, you know, obviously taken off. He's going to be a, obviously a day one guy in the NFL. I'm pretty sure.
0: Uh, I want to get you out of here with five rapid fire questions. Just five questions. Awesome. First thing that comes to mind. Um, all right. First one. I am the biggest Joe Moorehead apologist there is. Um, <laughs> how brutal was it to to miss uh, his offense by a year?
3: Yeah, that definitely was. I mean, I I I love Joe Mo and he's been he's been great to me throughout my career, but never got to really play for him. I mean, so that was uh, when I hear the stories, Mike Kosicki tells me about playing for Joe Mo. I get a little jealous that I didn't get to play for him a little bit.
0: Okay, um, you've you've talked about him. You just just brought him up right there, but I still have to ask: How do I know that you're not Mike Isicki?
3: <laughs> yeah we're the same person i don't know i think you uh, <laughs> he's a little bit more athletic if he heard that he'd be like no i'm way better looking and way more athletic <laughs> than adam um but uh but no mike and i you know we we really went through the ringer together at penn state in 2014 uh, no one really remembers but mike was having a really bad season he had dropped like he would have oh. like 14 drops his sophomore year and i was hurt and we were living together so we went through it then together and then i was obviously left but it was fun to get to go to UMass. And we, after every game we would FaceTime or talk and I'd have like 12 catches for 110 yards and two touchdowns. And he had like two for fi- two for like 15 yards. And I would always give <laughs> him crap for it. And he was like, yeah, but Adam, like we're winning the game. You're losing. every <laughs> <game."> <laughs>
0: Uh, is there a better feeling as a side end than running a seam against cover three?
3: Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's uh whenever you see the one high safety and you got the same route called, you just all you know you gotta keep it outside the hashes so you don't get nailed by the by the one high safety. But uh but uh yeah, it's it's definitely a good feeling. And that's the great thing about being a tight end. If you're smart, you can always tell before before you uh you know, before you even run the route that if you're if you're gonna get the ball or not, you know if it's coming to you. Uh, and that that's always honestly that's a like the thing in coaching that like I always try to tell like you can tell how smart a player is because when when players think they're getting the ball before the snap, like they run the route a little different, like they do. a little more swagger in the route. So I can always tell it's something I look for like in tight ends is, is, is do they know they're going to be open here before pre- pre-snap? Cause I know, but I'm not sure they know.
0: <laughs> and then the opposite, when they know they're not getting the ball and how pissed off they yeah, look and they're exactly. like, all right, they're, they're just going to go through the motions yeah. here. Um, you're from Pennsylvania. Best character on the office was who? What's
3: that? I'm sorry. Say it again. Uh you're from Pennsylvania. Best yeah. character on The Office was who? Oh, The Office. Okay. Um boy, I'm a big I'm a big probably Jim. I mean you got to go Jim, right? I mean, Creed is, is up there. I think, yeah, I think think Creed's like the weirdest dude ever. Kelly's good. Yeah. I'm trying to, I, I, it's been a while since I watched all of this, but in college I watched like every episode like 40 times. So, um, you got to give me some more, give me some more of the characters. Give give Uh, me a couple. Yeah. I mean, Dwight, Michael, definitely not Andy. Dwight just annoys me. Like I actually get frustrated with Dwight when I watch it. Um, yeah. Andy's great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a good question would be like, what's the best episode. And I think that the dinner office part is dinner party has got to be the best one, right?
0: Yeah. We we, <laughs> did, we actually did a bracket on the podcast a few years ago dinner party. One. Oh, really? I mean, we had, oh, I did think we had 64 okay. episodes. So yeah, it, it's dinner party. It's stress relief and stress relief. I've always said just has a bad name. If it had a better name, because that was the episode that yeah. aired with the roast that aired after the Super Bowl. Okay. Yeah. And if it wasn't stress relief it, and if it was just the roast, it, some people might consider the best episode of all time, but,
3: Dinner parties. Yeah, and, 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 like, and, and Another good one is uh, the fire drill one. Yes. Uh, yeah. 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 That's, that's, that's what I'm
0: talking about. That's stress relief right there.
3: Oh, is that stress relief? That's, okay. Yes. Gotcha. So okay. that was
0: the intro after the super bowl. Um, that would have been in 2009. I remember that was the first episode okay. I ever watched live. And that episode right. was like a two parter and they had that as the intro. And then the roast was in the second half of that episode, okay. but it's unbelievable. Second to none. Makes sense. <laughs> um, last one for you, best atmosphere in college football, happy Valley or the field.
3: <laughs> I mean, you got to go, I think you got to go happy Valley, right? <laughs> I, I, probably. I mean, I, I have not, I've not personally experienced
0: it. I need to experience a whiteout. That's top of the college football bucket list. But I was curious if there was, if there was one that kind of came to mind besides that for you that you're just like, Oh yeah. Cause I, I think the horseshoe kind of overrated. Yeah. I know that there are some other places that they, they can sell that they have a hundred thousand fans, but it doesn't quite feel like it when you're actually in
3: them. Yeah. I think um, you know, the places I played, I, I, being at Florida in the swamp was a, was a good one. We played there when I was at UMass. That was our, uh, my first game back after, after retiring was at the swamp at night at Florida. Um, and it was like raining and the place was packed and, uh, it was humid and, and the place was rocking. So that, that was a good one. We played at South Carolina, which was pretty cool. That's like a, not, not like the best environment. Like it's not loud or, but like, it's a really cool stadium and like a cool place to play. Um, Tennessee was a cool one we played at, but again, like that was there. that was when Tennessee like wasn't very good. We played there when I was at UMass, so not a great place. But I I will say that like the like Ohio State is definitely a a, a tough place to play, and the fans there are brutal. Like I remember standing on the sideline, and they it was when I was hurt, so I was like dressing for the game, but um wasn't playing. So like that was a big thing back then. Franklin and and Penn State staff would have a lot of the injured guys that like weren't like. More like not able to run, but like weren't able to play. Like still go through warm ups just to like keep our like our mindset like in the game, but we just would not play. So I was dressed. On the sideline the whole game, you know, like wearing a hat, and the fans were just like ripping me the whole time. Like, Gosh. like yeah, they were like Brennaman. Of course you can't play because beat beats you out. Like all this different stuff. They're just like <laughs> ripping the whole time. Yeah, they're just yelling at me. It was yeah, I, the fans they were definitely brutal at Ohio State. But I mean, I, I'll, I'll always take Happy Valley over over anything else. But there are a lot of a lot of good atmospheres that we got to play in. And one of the cool things about being at UMass was, you know, we were independent. It's, UMass still is, but at the time we were just traveling around playing these massive. We were playing. You know, in my two years at UMass, we played Tennessee, Florida, South Carolina, BYU, you know, all the Boston College, all these big power five schools. We were just traveling around. and got just get our butts kicked by all these Mississippi State, by all these big time SEC schools.
0: (laughs) But you got a million catches and that's all that matters. We did, for
3: sure. (laughs) For sure.
0: (laughs) Adam, this has been great, man. Really appreciate the time. Best of luck with everything.
3: I appreciate it. Thanks, Connor. What's my destiny, mom?
1: You're going to have to figure that out for yourself. Life is a box of chocolates Forrest. You never know what you're going to get.
0: Figuring out, we're talking about steak. Who doesn't like talking about steak? Vegetarians, vegans, probably. I like talking about steak, mm-hmm. so. I had steak for my birthday this past week, and I realized I have had the same birthday dinner each of the last three years. Wow, this is a really shocking fact about you. This is, <laughs> I can't believe it. No way, right? Uh, my three birthdays in my 30s, which I just threw up a little bit in my mouth saying that, <laughs> they've all been the same exact thing. And that's the sign that I'm getting old in my opinion. I had, I had a sirloin with risotto from local place here in Orlando, Cafe Marano for those in, in the, the Northern Orlando area. Um, basically looks out on a Cranes Roos, nice little spot. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, nobody cares about that. Rock solid meal, can't go wrong. I don't get steak out a ton. I, I'm not one of those people that every single time I go to a restaurant, I need to get steak. I'm not that guy. Sometimes I, I treat it more of like, I treat it as kind of a, a celebratory type meal in college. I used to do it every Thursday night though. I would cook a steak for myself, uh ribeye or T-bone and then pan sear it. I would then ha- watch the office. That was my Thursday night, unless cake. I was going out. At least the first part of the night, and then you know the office is over by like eight thirty, whatever it was, and then yeah, we'd have ourselves a have ourselves a good old college Connor night. Um, See, this is day. this is you know they talk about you
1: become the man you're going to be in college eating steak, hey, watching The Office tradition.
0: Those are probably about the only two things in my life that have stayed the same <laughs> since college. I'll be honest with you. I guess my degree journalism mm-hmm. uh, that that stayed the same, but. Other than that, yeah, yeah, I don't know why I had to reward myself for a four-day school week, but <laughs> I we didn't have classes. I didn't do classes on Friday after freshman year. No, 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 that was, that was not in the cards. It was never in the cards. So mm-hmm. yeah, that was the start of my weekend was, a nice T-bone from from the local Kroger and episode of the office, and we're we're good to go. I used to be a pan sear steak guy exclusively. Like um, we're just talking at home cooking here,
1: mm-hmm.
0: but getting a grill. I don't know if I'll pan sear at home again anytime soon because I, I think the, I think the grill takes it to that next level, and I, I I do notice the taste difference. Even though I'm not charcoal guy, don't hate me for not being a charcoal guy. All right, we got we got propane. We're we're doing just fine. And propane accessories. Yeah. We, we got all the accessories. All right. we We're, we're good to go. That, that is not an issue. You got me accessories. Mm-hmm. I've got my new meat prep home plate mm-hmm. with my that, that that looks just so good as we talked about that. I just want to hang it up as my Zoom background in here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We're not messing around with the accessories, but I am mostly a strip steak filet mignon guy on the grill uh, and just because I think they're pretty easy to cook and they're delicious. What about you? What do you, what do you tend to prefer either when you're at home or at a restaurant?
1: Um, so I'm definitely like, I'll go medium and I'm the type of guy to would get like a tomahawk. You know, I'm a thick boy. I like to get the kind of bigger steaks. Uh, so today, I don't think I told you the story about like John setting my steaks on fire for the Super Bowl, did I? Oh, God, man. So, one of my best friends uh, is a chef, right? I'm actually going to his house later. His, his wife is graduating, very happy for her, but uh, he's the best cook I've ever been around. And everybody's coming over for the Super Bowl, you know, we were doing whatever, and uh, I set a bunch of meats out, and I was like, okay, cool, I'm gonna like start this grill, get it kind of like preheating or whatever. I was like, I'm gonna go inside, grab my sausage, grab my other stuff, and of course, when I went inside, Brittany was like, hey, you know, just, Grab this, grab that. Can you make me a drink? Da, da, da. And I left John outside. You know, John, he's a very singularly focused lad. So I was like, All right, John, like, watch this grill, man. And he's like, Okay, cool. Walked outside to a raging fire, and John just sitting exactly where I left <laughs> And I was like, John, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know. You didn't want this? I was like, It's on fire, John. He's like, Oh, sorry. This goes
0: back inside. Okay, so in what world then do you have to tell tell you in this case, something has gone horribly wrong. If If a raging fire is not enough to warrant your attention, I would have been curious how far that could have gone. Does it, a house need to be Yeah, if it spreads fire? to the
1: house, I think that's where he would have let me. But the, the funny, funniest part of the story is my buddy is a chef had just walked in. And I was like, oh, finally get to taste my steaks. And I kind of walked in, like, defeatedly, like, 20, 30 minutes later. I was like, the, the steaks caught on fire. <laughs> I was like, sorry, bro. And he was just like, yeah, I bet they did. I bet, yeah, I bet that's out of the ordinary. I was like, I promise it is. But, yeah, point being, I got my grill. I love, you know, making steaks. I And I, I had gone through a whole grill season, too, last year and really gotten it kind of, like, perfected. And that was my first grilling experience of 2020. It was in February. So I had, not you know, I was knocking the rust off too. It was a whole, it was a situation.
0: That sounds like it. Goodness gracious. Drew Page, steak horror story. When I was young, my dad went to cook steak with a little charcoal grill. He didn't want to put it out on the ground. So he put it on the little side table our big grill had. Oh gosh. You know where this is going. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) He didn't want it touching the plastic. So he put roofing tiles under it. About five minutes later, we went out there and it had melted the tiles and had sunk about two feet into the plastic side table and was hanging on by plastic strands. Do you live in a volcano, son? Is that why you thought the roof would protect it from <laughs> fire? In what world was this working out well? <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. That's tough. Because you did, you did several things wrong here. You were doomed to fail from the jump, but then turning your back on it, Bad idea. Bad idea. And I, I've learned that's a difficult thing to process sometimes where you go inside, you've got maybe some veggies going, you've got some potatoes that you're preparing. You're like, all right, I got, I got three, four minutes to be able to go inside, take care of some other stuff, or you're going inside to get a plate or something like that. Um, five minutes away from a steak in that setup, that's bold. <laughs> you have, you had too much confidence, way too much confidence, um, father of, of Drew Page. Yeah. The uh, the, the, in, the inability to, to see that going wrong would make me question any future, any future sort of steak dinners with your family.
1: <laughs> We're no longer a, a steak dinners. So it...
0: Yeah. That's, that's when we decided the microwave was best. <laughs> and even that, we had to learn the hard way because we throw tinfoil in the microwave. <laughs> Dang, roasted this man. Drew, I'm sorry. Your family probably didn't do that. Probably didn't do that. But man, that's rough. That's really rough. Uh, Nick Ruark says... He likes a ribeye, he likes it medium, and then cooked and seasoned right requires no sauce, mashed potatoes, and grilled asparagus. Yep. That right there, no problem with whatsoever. I say this all the time, great meat should not require sauce. Mm-hmm. It just shouldn't. I apply that to steak, I apply that to ribs, eh, burger's a little bit different. Burger I wouldn't consider ground beef to be like great meat, mm-hmm. You know. you know what I mean? But even like sometimes you can get a really good piece of chicken that, in my opinion, doesn't even need sauce because if it's well-sauced beforehand, then you're perfectly fine. The ideal side, mashed potatoes and asparagus is money in the bank. Cannot go wrong with that. Mm -hmm. Grilled asparagus, I've struggled with a little bit just because I always end up getting at least one turn the wrong way or something like that, and then it falls through the slots of the grill. I have the thing that you can also put on top of the grill as well to make sure that you're, you're you know, if you have like veggies or something that you're doing that they've got a little, they're, they're not just going straight through, you know, um, your grill plates and whatnot, but grilled asparagus is delicious. Mashed potatoes, I have no problem doing the Bob Evans thing from the grocery store and just heating that up. Mm-hmm. You talk, there are so many foods that are way better homemade, all right? I don't think mashed potatoes are good, that good homemade. I really don't and they take so much time and energy. Like why do people ever do this homemade when every single time I could just go get the prepackaged ones and it's perfectly delicious. And somebody's going to tell me, oh, you just haven't had the right homemade mashed potatoes. I'd like to ask the person that made those mashed potatoes how fun that was and if the reward was really worth it because it takes, uh, you're, you're talking to an Irish man here. All right? <laughs> I know my way around the Potato authority. <laughs> I know my way around a potato. All right, like we're we, we've experienced all shapes and sizes here. I'm just more of a believer, get the prepackaged mashed potatoes, spend your time on um, making sure those veggies are cooked right, make, making sure your steak is cooked right. Let let the, the mashed potatoes kind of be the easy, controlled variable of your dinner experiment.
1: You know, I started to say, oh, you know, you've, you've changed so many of your food takes as you move to the South. We'll spend some time on this. And I realized almost exactly as you said, ah, he's Irish. He might actually have the shrug card with potatoes. So you know what? Fine. Have wrong opinions. You're more qualified than me. <laughs> All right,
0: tell me, tell me a time, because here's the other thing I I, I don't like. We're getting on a rant about homemade mashed potatoes. Homemade mashed potatoes always need so much gravy. When have you ever had homemade mashed potatoes that don't need a ton of gravy? Gravy's awesome. This is a problem to you? I don't want to have to make gravy, too. (laughs) That's fair, yeah. That's, that's another thing that I've got to be able to make and I'm be responsible for. And the process that goes into it, I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's just not worth it. Mm. I'd rather have oven roasted potatoes. I'd rather have a baked potato. I love baked potatoes. Give me a baked potato over homemade mashed potatoes all day. To me, that's just got so much more flavor. It's easier. I don't have to like, you know, do the entire process. Homemade mashed potatoes, miss me with that. All right, Tanner Starr says best way to order steak is by getting a table steak. I got the idea from Herb Street, which may have been from an SDS interview a while back. I don't know about that. Maybe it was. Maybe it wasn't. Um, it pretty much just blacked out during the Herb Street interviews. No. I'm <laughs> <laughs> Tanner says you order one big steak, medium rare, of course, for the table, like an appetizer, because everyone loves a few bites of steak. I'm never going back. That's legendary. I've never done this. Now I feel the urge to try it. Steak as an appetizer is such a baller
1: move. I couldn't imagine going to a business meeting and being like, "Just steak, just porterhouse, cut it up."
0: Yeah. And then the the waiter asks several times, "You want the before the meal? <laughs> you, Are we- you sure?" <laughs> yes, it, it's the appetizer. It's a I don't really know appetizer. if you can. I don't know if you can really. Uh, it depends on how many people you have. <clears throat> if you're getting a steak for like 12 different people. I guess you're just having steak as you're a mousse bouche. All right, like to me, I've never thought to do that, but you can have steak on appetizers as well. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Actually, now that I say that, I don't really have one that comes to mind. You're not getting like steak nachos as an appetizer, are you? No, I mean,
1: but there's like that version of steak that is like, not like wagyu, but it's like thin sliced. I'm trying to think of the name of it, but they have that as appetizers, just not a full steak. Like flank steak? No, there's like a, there's a word for it. I'm blanking on it, but the outside's seared, the inside's pretty much raw, and it's like a smaller piece. That's why I want to say wagyu, but there's a version of steak that's more or less. Steak tartare?
0: That's another, yeah, there's, I'll, I'll think of it, but yeah. Okay. All right. I stand corrected. That sounds like an incredible idea, and I would love to be able to try that. I don't know if my tax bracket is quite suited for that, uh, but Herb Street's definitely. And I now just want to go to a function in which somebody is able to pull out the yes, I'll have a, st- I'll, I'll have a, s- a table steak uh, for the appetizer. I want to be. I want those are the types of functions I want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Chris Milan says, uh, I go medium, medium rare. Oh, medium rare is what he has uh, when he's cooking a steak at home. Medium is what he gets out um mashed potatoes are the go-to side no on uh on sauce on steak unless it's meant to go with the meal horror is every time my wife has ordered a filet extra well done which is more than once (laughs) oof chris come on man At, at what point do you have to have that conversation with your wife of just being like look I don't want to say I can't be seen with you when you order that, because that's too harsh. But why? I, I would want to know the why. There's, there's, if you're doing that, there's a childhood experience that's connected with that. You don't just pick that up one day as like a twenty-eight year old and decide. You know what? Mm-hmm. Meat well done and completely overcooked. <laughs> that's the way to do it because you that's the beauty of steak and why people love it so much is you can still get that sear you can still get that flavor on the outside of the steak and still be able to cut into it and not feel like it's cooked crap i cooked a bone-in pork chop over the weekend for when my father-in-law was in town and i knew the second i took it off the grill yeah i got those great grill marks i also overcooked the crap out of it mm-hmm. and that's a terrible feeling when you know before you take a bite that you overcook something with steak you shouldn't have to worry about that that's it's versatile like that. So I don't know, but that sounds like it's some sort of childhood <laughs> situation that uh, Chris Milan's wife is working through. That seems like economically, it just doesn't make a
1: ton of sense. Cause if you're gonna order a well, extra well done filet, just get the cheapest steak on the menu. Like there's literally yeah. no difference between oh, yeah. an extra Great well point. done filet and an extra well done flank steak. Don't, I mean, you know what I'm saying? I'm not an extra well done connoisseur, but seems to be the same charred piece of meat at that point.
0: So we, we watch a lot of Top Chef in this house. Okay, Top Chef is a great show, by the way. Um, no spoiler alerts. No, actually, you know what? Spoil it. We don't have anything to spoil. We're caught up. Mm-hmm. But I would love to talk to a chef who is told ahead of time, you must cook this filet extra well done and what that's like <laughs> and watching them just cry and turn away as they like, Give a blind eye to, to send it out to service and mm-hmm. what that that emotional experience is like for them. Uh, that would not be fun. But hey, teach their own, I guess. Andy Gowen says um, Komodo Joe, uh, smoke a dry age tomahawk for one and a half hours at 225, then crank that bad boy up to 700 and sear the outside, garlic butter on top, let it rest for 20 minutes, travel to meet heaven. Man. I've never done the dry edge tomahawk. I need to, because that sounds delicious. I don't know. I, I'd be I'd be so afraid to cook that at this level of my steak cooking abilities. But I want to I want to get to that level where I feel comfortable doing that because I would be worried about with a tomahawk you have to still cut into it. A meat thermometer can only get you so far. You yeah. still need to see how rare that sucker is because. You might feel pretty good about it coming out of the oven 225 for an hour and a half, but I would still be a little bit leery of that, knowing that it probably still has more work to do. But man, if you perfect that,
1: the best steak I've ever had, I was talking about my buddy, uh, Peyton. He used to work at a place here called Uncle Jack's Meat House. And I finally got up to see him because our schedules were different. And I was like, hey man, I want you to make me like the best steak you have here. And he's like, yeah, like that right there. Dry aged, like tomahawk. I was like, cool, let's like line it up or whatever. It came with, or, or I ordered uh, some like maple bacon as well that were like hanging on little hooks. It was like a top five meal of my life. It was insane. I remember cutting into it and thinking like, whatever the like financial investment of this is, is so worth it because it was like, just head and shoulders. Yeah, that's the way to go if you get someone who knows what they're doing and yes. like can make that type of steak and like you like i said it's one of those things where you're like do i indulge in this yes if you're in a place that's known for great
0: steaks and you can have the best you've ever had that's the way to go yes i, I think you have to work your way up if you're cooking at home if mm-hmm. you're out at a restaurant that's what they do by all means but yeah if you're cooking at home you have to like work your way up to that level of thickness to feel comfortable with a cut like that uh, speaking of steak and bacon Our guy Emery says, ironically enough, I just finished making myself sirloin steaks. My favorite cut is a well-marbled bone-in ribeye cooked medium rare. Mm -hmm. A couple steak hacks, get the cheap bacon wrapped uh, petite fillets, take the back off, marinate it in a couple ounces of high rye, mashed bourbon, and some cayenne pepper, rewrap the bacon, smoke them until 125 internal, sear them off, enjoy. Also, marinated chuck steaks, pounded out thin and rolled up with jalapenos, cream cheese and spinach and grilled is phenomenal. Um, uh, I, I'm i officially hungry listening to that. <laughs> no surprise whatsoever that Emery is that thorough. I have not marinated a steak in alcohol before. Done teriyaki, done soy sauce, you know, obviously you've got your salt, pepper, your garlic, and stuff like that. I haven't experimented with that yet, and I feel like that's a rite of passage in the South. Have you done anything like that before? No, no.
1: I I just want to say, I always assumed Emory was like real Ron Swanson, and the more I learn about him, <laughs> the more accurate that is. <laughs>
0: That's spot on. I laughed at that answer the first time that I read. I was like, Lauren kind of looked at me as I was reading. She's like, why why are you laughing at that? I'm like, because if there was ever an answer that Emory was going to come out with for for steak, that was it right there. This is his moment. He's clearing
1: out, calling off the pick and just operating in this question.
0: (laughs) We're going ISO. We know what we're doing here. We got a plan. Uh, Let's get to a few more of these. Got a lot of good ones. Thank you for all these good responses here. Uh, Let's go to this one from Justin Lindsay. Justin says, medium rare, if you need sauce, it isn't a good steak. Mm -hmm. Only side dish you need is another steak. Speaking of Ron Swanson. Uh, I went carnivore for about three weeks and was loving it, basically eating a ribeye every evening for supper. That's not sustainable. <laughs> and then I got COVID and lost my, my taste for about a week in January for almost a month. The thought of any beef made me wanna puke and now I can only eat half a steak before I feel nauseous. It's getting better little by little. Oh no. Oh, you have to like rebuild your meat tolerance? I've never heard of that. Is, Will, you had COVID for a good amount of time here is is that that, that's that's a real thing have you experienced anything like that uh nope still fat (laughs) (laughs) i
1: i never lost my taste like my immune system just picked it up and got it out before i got to that point so dude i'd be i'd be uh, that'd be tragic i'm sorry you got to
0: go through that that would be the toughest thing to give up if you went if you went vegetarian or vegan Mm -hmm. i I think I, i i find myself craving a steak if i haven't had one in you know, maybe like not, not every month, but maybe like every other month, I find myself just thinking, you know what sounds really good? I want a steak on the grill. When I walk in the grocery store and I'm like, oh, two ribeyes for, or, or two strip steaks for 12 bucks, sign me up for some of that. Let's go. I'm not eating both of them. All right. Not, probably Why not. not. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'd, I'd get some looks from Lauren if I did that. But yeah, yeah that'd, be a, that'd be a tough craving to have to kick. And then that'd be an especially difficult thing to have to work yourself back into enjoying again after experiencing something like that. It's always really difficult to start eating a food that has ever made you nauseous or uneasy. Sh- that was shrimp for me, my food poisoning story mm-hmm. that, that I told on this pod about a month ago. <clears throat> really hard to get back on the, sh- on the, the shrimp train. It's but very sure. difficult. Boop. Boop. <laughs> Uh, Jonathan Mason says, depends on the cut, but searing in a hot cast iron skillet and then finishing to medium rare in the oven or on the grill is the way to go. Lots of butter. Steak sauce is only for sirloin and below. Mm -hmm. If you put Heinz 57 on a ribeye, I will fight you. Anything with potatoes is a great side dish for steak and the potatoes have uh, cheese in them. And if the potatoes have cheese in them, it's a bonus. Let's have the ketchup conversation. Do we have to? Okay. (laughs) I am sure a lot of people listening to this have parents who put ketchup on steak and that's what they grew up with. My mom, Lowry's, drenched the entire thing in Lowry's and then she had her ketchup, always, constantly. And I would always think to myself, huh, so it really doesn't matter what the marinade is for this steak. Doesn't matter whatsoever because mm-hmm. you're just going to taste ketchup and Lowry's. And what is luck? Lowry's now? Seasoning. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. It's, it's a seasoning blend. Um, Kanye references it once. Yeah, and what song is that? I can't remember. Kanye references it though. And uh, I think that if you grow up that way, it's probably a really tough thing to kick because there are so many things that just taste like ketchup that you're just so accustomed to putting ketchup on almost any form of meat. Mm -hmm. I hit a certain age, I don't know when it was, maybe it was like high school, like early high school, where I had a realization of there are better sauces available than ketchup. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to have my entire meal taste the same. I pretty much only have ketchup on french fries now. And even that is like, if there's nothing available type situation. Right. Ketchup on steak for me, I can't imagine any any situation in which I, I would actively seek that out. No, I, mean, I, I okay. Just can't. Extra well done steak. You got to eat it. Ketchup. So it, it would be a situation. <laughs> let's let's paint the scenario here. You're at a friend's house. Maybe you're at your in laws' house or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they overcook the crap out of your steak. There you go. <sighs> i don't know i still might go no sauce on that
1: oh i'm dousing might. that bad boy if it's overcooked i'm dousing that bad boy whatever's available if that's only ketchup fine like but he makes a good point it's like what is it sir lauren and below there is a level where like steak sauce does enhance the flavor but but above that level sacrilege
0: yeah that's true that's true lauren asked to have sauce on on steak every single time but she's she's a1 through and through or a1 or barbecue sauce i used to do barbecue sauce Back in the day, a lot, like that was that was a go-to in college. And then one time I was like, I wonder what this tastes like without barbecue sauce. And if I just rely on my marinade, my seasoning skills, mm-hmm. it's like this is pretty darn good. And I never looked back. Took off the training wheels. Took off the training wheels, and now I feel like I am better for it. If you like sauce in your steak, by all means, but you're getting you're getting weird looks if if you if you do ketchup especially at a restaurant. If you, if you're, you're actively like, Hey, waiter, I need this ketchup at at a steakhouse or something like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know, man. I don't know. All kinds of kinds, I guess, but that kind isn't me. Definitely not. Uh, let's go to, we've got so many of these. So, so many. We'll get to a couple more here. Um, let's go (laughs) Michael Dark. I'm ignoring your nothing goes better with uh, steak than ketchup. Um, Officer, get him out of here. Yeah, um, arrest this man. Tristan Page says, medium or medium rare for sure. Steak horror story. Uh, Cooked steak for dinner for Drew Page and I and our cat Pippin, I'm just gonna assume that's named after Scotty and not the musical, Mm -hmm. Um, Pippin, uh, took my whole steak straight off my plate and tried to run off with it growling at me. I didn't know cats growled, dragging it straight onto the floor. I hadn't even taken one bite yet. That's that's just a compliment to you. If you have a cat that is that eager to get their claws, maybe they're declawed, their, their mitts on a steak, you just cooked a great steak. So. I wouldn't be, that's not a horror story. That's a win. You made something that even an animal who doesn't typically eat steak wanted to consume.
1: Your I cat that's a has taste, sweetie. That means
0: you've raised yeah. a great cat. <laughs> that's, that's a moment of pride. Right. All right? Nothing, nothing more than that. If, if you're looking across the table and you know, maybe your significant other doesn't want to touch your steak or you realize that they're struggling, that's a horror story. All right. Mm -hmm. You can't take that off the plate. No, that's just a sign that you did your job exactly the way that you should have cooking that steak. Okay. My mom's got one. Let's go. Uh, In honor of Mother's Day. Yeah, let's let's end with this one. Um, My mom says steak horror story happened at a restaurant up in Wisconsin. I ordered medium rare and it came back well done. When I complained to the waitress, she took out a red pen from her apron and shined it on the steak. She said, see, it's red. (laughs) Yes, I made her take it back and bring me a new one. You pay a lot of money for a steak at a restaurant, so it better be cooked the way you want it. Medium rare for me. I've heard that story a lot. (laughs) I wasn't there for that story. I have heard that story from her. I've heard that story from other people. Couple things. I have never sent a steak back at a restaurant. I haven't. I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing overall, because like my mom said, if you're paying a lot of money for, for a steak at a restaurant, you should, you should be able to get what you want. Okay? Mm-hmm. I heard uh, Tom Colicchio talked about this on part of my take actually, where he was at the, the Aspen Food and Wine Festival and they didn't cook a steak to his liking and he knew it. And then a waiter who knew what he had ordered came by and said, Hey, didn't you ask for this medium rare? And he's like, yeah, but you know, I'm not going to send it back. I'm not going to be a jerk. And then the other waiter actually took the steak and was like, no, 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 no. We're going to make sure that we get you exactly what you need. To me, that would be a reflection of a place that, that truly understands it. Mm-hmm. If you're at a place like that where they give you that kind of treatment with the red light, <laughs> Which you know, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall there, Yeah. Uh, or just in that scenario because it's my family and I could have been. Um, that's that's a scenario in which I, I would just say I'm never going to that place again. Right. That you've lost your your customer. That that's not happening. If this is this is your standard, then sorry, I, I'm. I, it's not worth my time to expect you to be able to get this right the second time. I'm not one to cause a scene. I'll just go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. I'll just go somewhere else, okay? There's always there's always another option. Have you ever sent a steak back at a restaurant?
1: I have for a very similar reason. It was one of those like Bruce Christ at places where there's a, like the, the steak almost keeps cooking on the plate and maybe even mm-hmm. out for a minute. And I think like same deal, I ordered it medium. I bet it was out for a minute and you can kind of see how it cooked it upward and it's like, Dude, like, come on. And uh, yeah, cause I think that was back, I was a little bit younger too. It was back when I was getting like butterfly, like smaller steaks. It was like, this is a totally different thing. Um, also really quick, like one of the things that blew my mind, um, again, talking to my buddy who's a chef, is at fine dining restaurants, how much of a budget they have for stuff getting sent back and they just comp it because they're just like, we would rather not have someone telling the story X amount of years later than like, yes. we don't care. We won't fight with you. And that's like usually probably a mark of a good place is like, you know, if you're not happy with your food, we'll fix it regardless. We don't, we don't want to argue with you. Cause yeah, if they're
0: sitting there arguing with you, it's like, you've already lost dude. Like you're going to get a bad review. Yeah. And that place, um, yeah, it took, a, it took a bad rap. Um, I know from my mom probably telling that story to, to other people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Shout out to the English Inn in Door County, Wisconsin. We just put them on blast. <laughs> right. Uh, but the, the, the exception, you, you can't eat like raw food, obviously. All right, if, if, your, steak is, if your steak is undercooked, I've sent a burger back before that I bit into that was absolutely delicious. And it was one of those debates <laughs> where I was thinking to myself, is this burger good enough to get food poisoning over? <laughs> right,
1: that's, that's the real conversation you have with yourself. It's like, can I yes. safely
0: ingest this food? That's
1: usually why Matt with sending stuff back. It's like, I'll take the L, fine. But if I can't eat this dude, get it together.
0: Yeah. If it just needs to run through a a little bit longer. All right. Let's, let's make that happen. Although they they have to, they have to recook it. You're not probably throwing that, that same steak back in the grill if it's already got stuff on it or or something like that. But that's probably the lone exception. But if it's slightly overcooked, I'll just sit there and stew about it. And then probably just not go back to that restaurant if it's, if it's overcooked or if it's not to, to my liking. But yeah, who knows though? I'm obviously I'm, I'm clearly getting more elitist when it comes to this crap. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a moment and that's, that's coming to a podcast lead near you. All right. We'll just say that now. That's <laughs> the best part of growing up is knowing what you love and what works
1: for you and not, you know, yeah. that's, that's culture. You know.
0: It is culture. Yes. A lot of great steak takes. Hold on really quick. Can we read John's thing about Haas's
1: steakhouse? Just that little bit.
0: Oh, gosh. I wasn't sure if John was joking when he said this. So that's why I skipped over it. <laughs> he
1: said, there's a restaurant called Hoss's Family Steak and Seafood Chain in PA. Before we got to Texas Roadhouse, right before I went to college, that was peak steak in my town. Went back, ordered a steak, looked at whatever they handed me, and proceeded to get up and leave. Never looked back. That's probably an accurate story. Because when John left Pennsylvania, he didn't go back.
0: Never again. It's no. not worth it.
1: He was. I, I could see that being the final show. Is John just seeing a well-done steak, flipping it off the table, getting in his car, just driving <laughs> to Orlando.
0: <laughs> There's got to be better. There's always got to be better. Tired of this town. Tired of this. Can't even cook me a steak the way that I want it. It's not worth living here. Yeah. John just walking out. Um, Thank you to everybody who submitted responses. A little bit of a different format today. Hopefully people enjoyed uh, those interviews. Got some great first time guests coming up here. Uh, that I think people really enjoy kind of hearing from them. Getting, getting into it, some some different topics. I know it's been really NIL heavy lately. We've talked a lot about NCAA type stuff, some just kind of heavy stuff into the month of May. It was kind of like that during this time of year last year, especially when all the talk happened with and uh, post NIL and Texas and Oklahoma coming to the SEC. So I don't want to just do that. So next week we're going to be doing all bang the drum team mm-hmm. for twenty twenty two. Um, so look out for that. I've already kind of done my skeleton rundown. and I've, I've got my preliminary spots picked out. So uh, we will do that next week. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Join the Facebook group, Saturday Night on South Podcast on Facebook, hearing in red on air with Figuring Out or Bold and Brash. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.